Back in the news. After nearly nine years on death row, and not long after he divorced his wife, Tom Odell granted another interview. This time, he spoke to Randy Snyder, Mount Vernon Bureau Chief for the Morning Sentinel. These are excerpts from that story. He won't be 29 until December 20th, yet he has spent a third of his life in the condemned unit, Death Row, on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. A picturesque sight as one faces west, but considerably less so when one turns to view the grim facade of the maximum security unit of this aging facility. Odell got his first look at Death Row on July 3rd, 1986. What went through my mind? Odell repeated the question during an exclusive interview on Thursday, at a visiting room not far from his cell. I was a 130-pound, 18-year-old white boy coming to death row. What do you think was going through my mind? I was scared as hell. At the time, Odell was the youngest person in Illinois to ever be placed in a condemned unit. I want to tell my side of the story even though I know it's going to cause my family, especially my grandmother, a lot of pain to have all of this brought up again. At the time, Tom's case was up for appeals. Odell's appeal is being based on contention that his court-appointed counsel at the trial court level was inadequate, and that Tom was under the influence of hard drugs 10 years ago. The average murder appeals process runs 15 to 17 years, Odell said. So I figure I've got maybe seven or eight more years left to try and get out of here. His nine and a half years at Menard have not been uneventful. He has gotten married, but now says he seeks a divorce and has a new girlfriend. Odell says he has also converted to Catholicism, has kicked the cigarette habit, and no longer drinks hooch, a prison underground alcohol drink made from just about anything that ferments. The shoulder-length hair he displays in his prison identification photo is gone. His hair was similar to a style he wore a decade ago. Odell contends the changes are more than physical. The Tommy Odell who did those things ten years ago is dead, he said. Tom Odell today would not think of doing such things. He knows there are other ways to deal with problems. If Tom Odell got out of here tomorrow, he would be John Q. Citizen with a 9-to-5 job, a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, station wagon, home every night. Those are the things I want out of what's left of my life. Odell says he stopped smoking cigarettes about one and a half years ago. I decided that if I can beat this, I'll be damned if I'm going to let cancer get me. One Christmas a few years ago, I had to go to the hospital after drinking a bunch of hooch. I had a blood alcohol level of something like 0.24. That cured me of drinking. Odell says he regrets getting the tattoos that adorn most of both arms. I did most of them myself right after I got in here. What can they do once they're on there? Back then, I had to show everybody I was tough, you know? I wouldn't do it now. He says another inmate's influence led to his conversion to Catholicism about two and a half years ago. I was a Protestant, but this guy got me interested in being Catholic, so I studied it for a long time and decided it was more in line with what I believe. Odell says his current existence finds him locked in a private cell 21 hours Mondays through Saturdays and all day Sunday unless he has visitors. I get an hour and a half a day to use the law library and another hour and a half a day in the yard. Odell says he uses the yard time to lift weights or play basketball, a skill he acquired only after going to prison. Hey, I was a druggie before, he says. 
The exercise has obviously paid dividends. Odal's t-shirt could not hide considerable upper body development. I'm not a skinny little kid anymore. I usually go to bed about 8 p.m. and wake up at 3.30 or 4 a.m. because that's about the only time it gets quiet around here, he said. Then I can read or just think. My TV is my celly. It's usually on, but I'm not always watching it. We get basic cable TV and an institutional channel that shows recently released movies. It's paid for by the inmate trust fund, which gets money from a percentage of the vending machines and so on. He added, I've got a pet. It's a little bitty field mouse about the size of my thumb. I made him a house by melting some food cartons together. Odal says his current neighbors are respectful of one another. Nobody is trying to drown each other out by turning up the volume on their TVs or stereos. I use my headphones if I want my TV loud. One thing that's tough is making friends in here and then watching them being taken out to Stateville Correctional Center in Joliet for execution and knowing they won't be back. Odell said that if he had to do it over, he would have kept his job and apartment in Covington, Kentucky, a Cincinnati suburb where he lived before returning to Mount Vernon in the fall of 1985. It had a little place, nothing fancy, but it was mine. And a beat-up old van, he said. I didn't have much money for drugs and alcohol because it took most of what I earned to keep a roof over my head. They wanted me to come home, so I did. A son of a friend of theirs had killed himself playing Russian roulette, and they said they were afraid I might do something like that. Then they told me I couldn't live there anymore, Odal said. In fact, I had played Russian roulette several times, usually by myself in my room, with this twenty-two pistol I had. Reflecting on the day of the murders, Tom told Snyder he was going to take Teresa home the morning after the murders and then commit suicide by driving the family car into something so that he would die in the collision. Additionally, although no one witnessed him playing Russian roulette, such behavior was consistent with the suicidal ideation that he reportedly manifested intermittently prior to the murders. Twenty-five years after the murders, Tom recalled his experiences playing Russian roulette. As far as Russian roulette, I had played a few times. I'm not quite sure how many times, more than a couple, and not more than five. I was using a 22 revolver that was my father's, and it was loaded with only one bullet. I would get home late at night, around 11 or 12. Everyone would be asleep. I would smoke a joint or two, listen to music, and play solitaire until I would get tired enough to go to bed. Before I would go to sleep, I would get my father's 22 revolver, go back to my room, and unload it. I would put one bullet in, spin the chamber, lock it, put it in my mouth, and pull the trigger. I was tired of not knowing who I was, where I was going, and not being able to answer the question of what was wrong with me. One morning I got up and nobody was home except Dad, who was leaving to run some errands. I decided to play then, and something inside me said, pointed at the ceiling, which I did and pulled the trigger. It went off, scaring the hell out of me. I told Dad it was an accident, but I don't think he believed me. He took the gun and hit it. I never played again after that. I guess that woke me up from the idea of doing something to myself. During the Snyder interview, Tom expressed his views regarding his trial attorneys and the formation of a Tom O'Reilly. He also contends his court-appointed attorneys, James Hudson and Carl Stowe, were incompetent. 
Hansen is still Jefferson County Public Defender. Stowe was fired as an assistant defender by the county board shortly after the Odell trial. After it was revealed, Stowe had run up a telephone bill of several hundred dollars, calling from his only motel to his father's law firm in Greenville. Formation of a Tommy Odell fan club made the Associated Press wire at the time as teens who saw themselves in similar situations made Odell a cult hero of sorts. I got letters from kids saying they'd thought about killing their parents, Odell said. My girlfriend has told me that she felt like that before. I guess a lot of kids consider it. But the difference is, they didn't cross that line. But a fan club named after me? That's sick. I don't accept my situation, he said, his blue eyes hardening. I deal with it. And he notes, You'd be surprised what you miss in here. I miss seeing the stars. From my cell, I can see absolutely beautiful sunsets on the river. But the angle of my window is such that I can't see the stars. I also miss certain smells, but mostly, I miss the smell of freedom. Be sure and put this in your article. Maybe you could end with it. Just tell any kids out there that no matter how bad things may seem at the time, there's always a way out if you'll just stop and think, use your head, and stay away from the damn drugs. Tell them to write to me, and I'll write them back. I wish I had someone to talk to. While Tom waited for the appeals process to take its course, the battle over the death penalty nationally, and in Illinois in particular, continued to be waged. Less than four years after Tom was sentenced to death, the state of Illinois carried out its first execution, based on the death penalty statute established in 1977. On September 12, 1990, Charles Walker, who had been convicted of the double murder of a couple in East St. Louis and sentenced to death, was executed by lethal injection at the Statesville Correctional Center in Joliet, Illinois. The strangest time for me was when the state of Illinois started executing people again in 1990. All of a sudden, individuals who had been my neighbors for years were being led away to be murdered by the state. I knew their families, had broken bread with them, and had enjoyed yard with them. One neighbor, George Del Vecchio, had a heart attack one week before his scheduled date with the needle. They rushed him out to the hospital, treated him, and returned him in time for his execution. That blew my mind. When John Wayne Gacy was executed, the prison staff rushed to clean out his cell so they could claim his sheets and rug and anything else left behind. I was amazed. Why would anyone want to touch, let alone possess that man's sheets? Even more bizarre behavior came from some of the inmates on death row, who you would think would feel some sort of empathy. They would start sending notes to the soon-to-be-executed person, asking him for some of his property. It was just disgusting. A few people left me some of their things when they left, but I couldn't keep them. I just pushed them under my bed until I could eventually send this stuff to their families. As a whole, we were like a big family comprised of diverse personalities that would pull together in times of need or even revolt against the staff. But there were times that really made me wonder, what is this guy's deal? Many men that Tom Odell knew and spent time with on death row ultimately left the row for a final trip to Joliet. Others met different fates as the sticky brew of the Illinois death penalty continued to boil and new evidence rose through the mire to the surface for all to see.
1994, John Wayne Gacy was eventually executed after the lethal injection apparatus malfunctioned on his first attempt. Four months after Gacy was executed, Joseph Burroughs, who had been convicted of the murder of a farmer in Iroquois County in 1988 and sentenced to death, was exonerated based on evidence that Gail Potter, the woman who actually committed the murder, had falsely implicated Burroughs and another man in the crime. In March of 1995, the state of Illinois executed two men on the same day, in the first double execution in 40 years. James Free and Hernando Williams died within an hour of each other at the hands of a contract executioner at the Stateville Correctional Center in Joliet. Two months later, Gervies Davis was executed for a murder in St. Clair County following the denial of clemency by Governor James Edgar, despite evidence investigative journalism students at Northwestern University produced that cast serious doubt with respect to his guilt. And in September 1995, Charles Albanese was executed for the murder of three of his relatives. In November 1995, Rolando Cruz was acquitted for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of 10-year-old Janine Nicarico. Cruz and Alejandro Hernandez were wrongfully convicted of the crimes in 1985 in DuPage County as a result of the perjured testimony of police officers who lied that Cruz had provided them with the information about the crime that implicated him as the killer. Despite the fact that the lead detective in the case resigned in protest insisting that the state's attorney was prosecuting the wrong men, Cruz and Hernandez were prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced to death. Following their conviction, a serial rapist and murderer named Brian Dugan confessed to the crime. Nevertheless, the prosecutors refused to acknowledge their wrongful conviction of Cruz and Hernandez. In 1994, during his third trial in which DNA evidence was presented that conclusively confirmed that Dugan had raped the girl, one of the police officers admitted that he had lied during his previous testimony about Cruz's statements to the police. As a result of such compelling evidence, Cruz was acquitted. One month later, Hernandez was also exonerated. Two weeks before Hernandez was exonerated, George Del Vecchio was executed for the 1977 murder of six-year-old Tony Canzoneri during the robbery of the boy's home. During a seven-month period from June to December 1996, four more men were exonerated and freed from death row in Illinois. Two of these men, Verniel Jimerson and Dennis Williams, were convicted of a double murder in 1978, which the media labeled the Ford Heights 4 case. Based on evidence that included witness coercion, perjury, false testimony, and prosecutorial misconduct, Jimerson and Williams were exonerated in the summer of 1996. Two months later, Raymond Lee Stewart was executed for murdering six people in a killing spree in Rockford, Illinois in 1981, to which he had repeatedly confessed. In October of 1996, Gary Gauger was exonerated for the 1993 murder of his parents when the Illinois Appellate Court ruled that the police in rural McHenry County lacked probable cause to arrest him for the murders. During his original trial, no physical evidence was presented to implicate Gauger. However, the McHenry County Sheriff's deputies, who interrogated him, testified that he had confessed, despite the fact that no electronic or written record of his confession could be produced. Based on the deputy's questionable testimony and that of a repeated felon recruited by the prosecution who was in the same jail while Gauger awaited trial, Gauger was convicted of the double murder and sentenced to death. 
Less than a year following Gogger's exoneration, two members of the Wisconsin Outlaws, a motorcycle gang, were indicted for the murders. They were later convicted of the crimes. In December of 1996, Carl Lawson, convicted of the murder of eight-year-old Terrence Jones in East St. Louis in 1989 and sentenced to death, was also acquitted during his second post-conviction retrial. Lawson, who was a friend of the boy's mother, had been convicted based solely on the evidence that his shoe print was found at the scene of the crime. Although Lawson testified that his shoe print was present because he was called to the boy's home after his body was found, the prosecution dramatically claimed that the shoe print, which was partially made in blood, must have been the killer's. Lawson was the ninth exonerated death row inmate in nine years. On November 22, 1997, the second double execution in two years was carried out at the Stateville Correctional Center. Walter Stewart, convicted of the 1980 murder of jewelry store owner Thomas Pavlopoulos and store employee Danilo Rodica, and Derlin Edmonds, convicted of the rape and murder of nine-year-old Richard Miller in 1977, were executed within two hours of each other. Stewart and Edmonds marked the ninth and tenth executions, respectively, since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1977. January 1998 saw the eleventh execution since 1977. In 1990, Lloyd Wayne Hampton robbed and murdered 69-year-old Roy Pendleton in a motel room in Madison County. Prior to his execution, he stated that he accepted responsibility for his crime and made no excuses. Hampton declined the customary last meal and simply requested a Coke and cigarettes. Later that year, Anthony Porter was granted reprieve by the Illinois Supreme Court 50 hours prior to his scheduled execution because psychological evaluation revealed that Porter's IQ was in the moderately intellectually disabled range. He had been convicted of the 1982 murders of Marilyn Green and Jerry Hillard on the south side of Chicago. At that time, it was still legal to execute people with intellectual disabilities in the state of Illinois. However, his intellectual status drew into question his competency to be executed. The reprieve allowed a team of volunteer attorneys, investigators, and a group of Northwestern University journalism students to investigate the case. The investigation revealed that Porter had been wrongfully convicted and provided evidence that a man named Alstree Simon had killed Green and Hillard. Two weeks later, Stephen Smith became the 11th death row prisoner to be exonerated when the Illinois Supreme Court reversed his conviction. The court held as unreliable the quote-unquote eyewitness testimony of a prosecution witness and crack addict named Deborah Carraway, whose testimony was singularly responsible for convicting him of the murder of Verdine Willis in a Chicago Southside bar in 1985. Shortly following the exonerations of Porter and Smith in February 1999, Andrew Cocorales was executed at the Tams Correctional Center in Southern Illinois. He had been sentenced to death for the abduction and murder of 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski in 1982 and had received a life sentence for the murder of Rose Beck Davis. Governor George Ryan denied Cocolaris clemency, but agonized over his decision to deny clemency that arose so closely on the heels of Porter's and Smith's exonerations one month before. Two months after Cocolaris's execution, the twelfth execution in ten years, Ronald Jones became the twelfth death row inmate to be exonerated in a period of twelve years. 
Despite the lack of any physical evidence linking Jones to the murder, a Cook County Circuit Court judge convicted and sentenced Jones to death for the 1985 rape and murder of a young woman on Chicago's South Side. Jones had testified that his signed confession was the result of relentless beatings by Chicago police detectives. His attorney, Richard Dick Cunningham, also Odell's lawyer, legendary death row lawyer and former assistant Illinois appellate defender, obtained DNA testing that conclusively revealed that the semen recovered from the victim did not come from Jones. As a result, the prosecutors eventually dropped the charges against Jones. Something bizarre happened to Richard Cunningham that I never thought possible. His son attacked and murdered him in the same manner I attacked and murdered my father. I was shocked and almost unbelieving of the whole situation. What were the chances that the man defending me would end up a victim of the same type of crime that I committed? That blew my mind more than I could put into words. Was it karma? Irony? What? On January 18, 2000, Stephen Manning, a former Chicago police officer and FBI informant who had been convicted of the murder of his former business partner James Pellegrino and sentenced to death in 1993, was exonerated. His conviction was based on the testimony of a jailhouse informant and convicted felon who was facing new charges. The FBI agents arranged to have Thomas Dye share a cell with Manning. The state's attorneys provided Dye with a tape recorder. Although Dye testified that Manning had confessed to the murders, no confession was present on the recordings. Nevertheless, Manning was convicted of the murder and sentenced to death. Prosecutors rewarded Dye by significantly reducing his sentence. Later, the Illinois Supreme Court reversed Manning's conviction, and the prosecutors dropped the charges. As such, Manning was the 13th man to be exonerated and released from death row in 13 years. Faced with an unprecedented historical course that involved more exonerations of death row inmates, 13, than executions of death row inmates, 12, during a period of 13 years, Governor Ryan was forced to make a decision that would become the source of argument and debate for years to come. On January 30th, 2000, Ryan declared a moratorium on executions in Illinois. In 2000, Governor George Ryan announced a moratorium on executions, which means he put the pause button on the machine of death. Up until that time, I had witnessed 12 men leave death row to be executed, and another 13 men leave death row to go home because they were exonerated. Hope was born in my life. It occurred to me that I might actually have a future, a thought that had died when I received my death sentence. This notion forced me to do some real soul-searching about who I was, who I wanted to be, and how to merge the two.